0: Have you ever met one of those people who just can't be stopped? It's like they're unstoppable. Yeah, I have. Me too. What's their mystique?
1: Nothing stops these people. Don't stop. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso. You're about to meet some of the most amazing people. They've accomplished their goals despite insurmountable odds. They beat adversity, physical hardship, and traumatic events, and emerged triumphantly. They're people just like you and me, and they're winners. Are you unstoppable? Here's Frankie to show you how.
2: Well, hello there, and welcome to Mission Unstoppable. I am your host, Frankie Picasso, and today we are going on another mission, this time back in time to my favorite era, the 70s. Yeah, the ride might get a bit nostalgic for some, might get bumpy, and we might be jumping back and forth in time. So settle and sit back, and I can guarantee it's going to be an unforgettable ride. My guest today is Dr. Glenn Berger, author of the extraordinary rock and roll epic Never Say No to a Rockstar. It's an autobiographical romp through his angst-driven, Teenage years to now, starting uh, a magical—you know—starting in a magical time in history when the best music in the world was being recorded. According to me, uh, some of it on 52nd Street at A&R Records, where Glenn, under the tutelage of the legendary Phil Ramone, uh, rose from tape slapper to respected recording engineer, and he worked on and with some of the biggest stars of our times, like Mick Jagger, Sinatra, Dylan, Paul Simon. Judy Collins, Phoebe Snow, and Bob Fossey, to mention just a few names you might know. After 20 years in the music business, Glenn became a psychotherapist and currently practices in New York City and around the world via Skype. He's the inventor of a series of psychology iPhone apps called Shrinky, and he blogs about relationship success and creativity at his website, www.glenberger. That's two N's with dot net, And he is also the author of a children's book, Princess Shantik and the Outside World. Excerpts from his memoirs have now been published in Esquire, Rolling Stone, and SOS Magazine, and today you get to hear him here with me on Mission Unstoppable. Welcome, Glenn, to the show.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Frankie. It's great to be here.
2: Oh, it's such it's such a pleasure. Uh, you know, I just have to say it's a fantastic book. I, you know, I'm calling everybody. Got to read this book. You got to read this book. It's so thank great. So, yeah, really, really well written. Really well written and, and engaging. And it's kind of it's always fun to look at somebody else's life. The book had another title. It had a working title. Yes. It was, what was it? The Schlepper and the Star or something like the that? The
3: Schlepper and the Superstar, yeah.
2: And and so people, it was too Yiddishy, or what was what?
3: exactly? <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you're a fan of Christopher Guest's movies, but uh, there's one movie about that where it's too Jewish. But yeah, the the, the, the thought was that uh, first that they, that people wouldn't know what a schlepper was, uh-huh. which I do define in the book. Uh, I was I was uh, my first job at AR Studios was schlepper. A and R had two studios, one at 52nd Street and Seventh Avenue, and one at 48th between Eighth. 9th in Manhattan. This was the Broadway district. And it was my job to push a hand truck full of audio tapes from one studio to the other. Uh, and and the name of that job was uh, schlepper, coming from to schlepp, which is yeah. to drag stuff. And you know, New York was dangerous at that time in the '70s. So a trip across Midtown with a hand truck could be uh, could be a dangerous thing. You never knew when you were going to get mugged or somebody was going to hit you over the head with an axe or something like that. So I that's where I got my my um, degree uh, from Screw University in the "Don't Screw With Me" class. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so you're bigger, big. You know, I come off with your big self. <laughs> your little oh, yeah. big yeah. self. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love it. I love little, that voice little that you had. Redheaded
3: kid. <laughs> yeah. Big self, Yeah.
2: <laughs> I know. I don't know. I mean, I when you describe yourself, and and you're quite handsome, but you describe yourself in the book, and and uh, you know, you have to think of Woody Allen. I mean, the little redheaded skinny guy, right?
3: Like. Yeah. 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 With in curly fact- hair. Uh, When I was working with Bob Fosse on All That Jazz, which was an incredible experience, one of the most fun parts of that – let me see if I can turn that off. One of the most fun parts of that was um, going to a screening, an early screening of the movie, and I found myself in an elevator with Woody Allen, and actually, uh, he looked nothing like me.
2: No. Was (laughs) he with a (laughs) (laughs) pre-progressant?
3: Exactly. He was yeah. he was wearing a hat over his, you know, so you couldn't really see his face. And he was criticizing the film, which I didn't think was very nice. But, uh, well, that's not fair.
2: There's a lot of criticisms going on in Indeed. your life during that time, for sure. That's, that's pretty funny. I love it. Um <laughs> So you you somehow managed to get your way in. Actually, I'm going to back up for a second because I'm going to I'm going to start at the back at the end of the book. The end of the book, there's kind of almost a throwaway. You're 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 with Milton Brooks, Broadway Max, um, yeah. and and you're you know kvetching, complaining, throwing you know this line, and he looks at you and says, "Enjoy it, kid. One day it's going to make a great book." Yeah. And at the time, you kind of didn't understand it, but you actually dedicated the
3: book to him. Yeah. Why did you do that? Of everybody. Well, you know, the the thing is is that of course the 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 cover of the book I had to have the names of the superstars that I worked with. Mick Jagger, Bob Dylan, Frank Sinatra. And certainly those experiences are unforgettable, and I love talking about them. But to me, the real heroes of that time, uh, and the real heroes of my book, uh, were the people behind the scenes. Uh, The great studio musicians. Um, I just Mm -hmm. did an amazing uh, Studio Cats reunion here in New York a couple of weeks ago where 40 musicians and singers uh, volunteered uh, to, to sing and play at this thing. It was a benefit for a charity called Music Cares. Uh, We raised a bunch of money for them. Um, These are the people who who were egoless, who who really devoted their lives to making some of the greatest music of our time, whose names you don't know about. And, And Milton Brooks, to me, was the ultimate... Uh, example of this thing. Max was the most unlikely character that you would ever meet at a hip Midtown recording studio. Every day he wore the same shiny black suit with dandruff on his shoulders. He had yellowing teeth and a yellowing shirt, a stained red tie, always carried an umbrella. Max had been um, born in Minneapolis. And, and he was supposed to inherit his father's haberdashery store, but as soon as he could get on that Minneapolis to New York train, he left, and he was in New York. And he, and and that Broadway district was Max's jungle. He just he just loved that. Uh, and he every time a new kid would come into the studio like myself. He'd take them under his wing. He turned me on to great literature. He turned me on to wonderful theater. Uh, and he he was always there for me when things got, got rough. And uh, so, yeah, I would go up to him and, and complain. And he would just laugh and say, Yes. Yeah, so what? So Paul tr- Simon treated you in a, you know, in a horrible way because he realized that this was our our one spin on the turntable. This was our one moment in all of eternity to be at the center of the universe. The New York music business of the nineteen seventies, uh, and he just loved every second of it. The glory, the agony, uh, you know, and and um, and the insanity. So uh you know he was really a, a great mentor and a role model for me, and i didn't really understood, understand his message until all these many years later uh now that i'm probably older than he was then uh to to really appreciate what was going on then when i at when I was a kid you know when we're kids we don't
2: you don't take
3: know for granted, for granted
2: yeah, absolutely you take it for granted i mean you have to there's a magic line that you pass, and then you turn around you look back and you go. Oh, crap. I wish I could do that again.
3: Yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. Just appreciate it and take it in.
2: You know, last week before I started your book, I was driving down the street, and, and I can't remember if it was the Eagles or or some band from the – I really can't even remember who it was, but it was 70s music, and, I, and I, tears came to my eyes, and it was almost like the beginning of your book where tears came to your eyes, yeah. and I thought, God, I hope they play in heaven. You know, it was the weirdest thought that ever came to me, and, right. but I thought, then it'd be okay. If they're in heaven, it'd be okay. You know? right. It was like, There's- wow. It's like such a magic time. It's
3: yeah, crazy. There's, some, there's some great, great bands on there. Unfortunately, so we've lost so many in, incredible musicians and artists, and 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 many way too early. Uh, yeah. and, and one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book and also and have that great uh, reunion is because I wanted to do it before we we all passed on. You know, I wanted yeah. to write this moment in history. Uh, and and there was really nobody else who could tell who could tell the story, so I, I had to tell it.
2: I love it. So how did you get into this business? Now, I know that, you know, since I was nine years old, I wanted to be on the radio and I didn't get on the radio until I was like 50. But you, you, you know, you were like 17 years old and, and somehow a family friend or something got you into A&R. So tell us the story, how it all began.
3: Yeah, well, well it really began when I was about uh 5 or years old or something like that and and I had an older brother and he brought home this this 45 rpm record and we yeah, put on our little phonograph and and it was Land of a Thousand Dances by uh, um Wilson Pickett
4: mm-hmm. and
3: um I said I want to make one of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and actually, many many years later, uh, Wilson Pickett recut that song, and I actually got to record that. So I got to fulfill that that dream.
0: Oh, how
2: fun! Uh,
3: which was really an amazing experience. Um, but in any event, uh, yeah, I I mentioned to my mom that I wanted to work in a recording studio, and she was kind of a stage door mom. And the next thing I knew, she had gotten me an internship at one of the world at the top jingle house. A, a, Place that made advertising music mm-hmm. at that time, and it was run by a sort of a, a musical mod squad. There was this black guy uh, named Bernie Drayton who was amazing, and the, the owner of the place was Herman Adele. And there was this woman, Susan Hamilton, uh, a pioneer in the business, uh, a genius, had incredible ears. She could listen to a sixty-piece orchestra and know that the second oboe player was, you, you know, uh, playing the wrong note in the forty-second measure. She just had those kinds yeah, of. Ears. Incredible. Was a very strong. A uh, pioneering woman. There were very few women in the business at that time, and she was a great leader. Uh, and she saw something in me. I walked her dog every day. That's that 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 was my main job. And she got me the internship uh, at A Studios. So uh, I was told to go see the studio manager on my first day. And uh, so I walk in very intimidated by the whole thing. And I go into the main office and the, the studio manager comes up to me and he sticks his nose in my face. He had a big Italian nose to, to match my big Jewish one. And he said, two rules. Rule number one, you keep your mouth shut. You got it? Now, I didn't know what to say at that point. Right? <laughs> <laughs> then he said, rule number two, anything that anybody asks, your only answer is yes. Do you have that one? I, now I, at least I knew what to answer and I said, yes. So there were a couple of assistant engineers sitting around the office uh, and, and he said, well, go figure out what to do with this kid. So the first thing they did was they took me into uh, into into the studio at the far end of the hall, a beautiful studio, Studio A1, a legendary room where so many hit records were made. And in the back of that room, there's a smaller room called a vocal booth where you would put the singer at, to be able to be separated from the orchestra or the band. And then one of them pulled out uh, a little piece of paper and uh, unfolded it, and another one took a spoon off from around his neck. Um, And they started passing around the spoon and putting it in the white powder on the paper and then offered me some. And I had just been instructed that no matter what anybody asks, my only answer is yes – Right. The next thing I knew at 17 years of age, I did cocaine for the first time. So that was the third thing I learned in the studio on the first day. We
2: are going to go to a commercial break very (laughs) shortly. (laughs) And what a perfect place to end as you go down the rabbit hole into the world of recorded music. (laughs) Don't go away. We're coming right back with Dr. Glenn Berger. Uh, No more cocaine.
1: We'll finish that story.
2: (laughs) We'll finish that story when we come right back. Stop.
1: That's right, don't stop listening. Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso will continue right after these messages.
0: Stop. Secret Cuisines and Sacred Rituals is a quest, a place, and a feast. Join host Velosi Venkatachalam every week to explore myths, mystique, old medicine, and brilliant modern solutions through a dazzling kaleidoscope of cuisines, cultures, and cures. This is the place where tribes gather and new cures join velocity every friday at 11 a.m eastern standard time only here on the woohoo radio network
1: it's the fitness minute with fitness expert annette
5: hammond low-fat foods can be healthy or unhealthy depending on what you choose to eat whole foods like vegetables fruit beans rice and potatoes are all low-fat and good for you Processed low-fat foods are a different story. Eat This, Not That says that the term low-fat is synonymous with loaded with salt and cheap carbohydrates. Many times when the fat is taken out, it is replaced by unhealthy ingredients that are not good for you. The New England Journal of Medicine found that over a two-year span, people on low-carb diets lost 62% more body weight than those on low-fat diets. It's always important to keep your fats low while choosing good, healthy foods to eat. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. If you're a fan of Fitness Minute, like us on Facebook at Fitness Minute with Annette Hammond.
2: So pump me up. Yeah. Pretty apropos, I think. Uh, we, we just did our first hit of cocaine, and
3: welcome to the music biz. There it is, Sex yeah, and real. So that same day, you know, uh, right right after that, I got to hang out at a session with James Brown, and then Thanks. got to watch Paul Simon uh, record uh, the uh, b- vocals for "Loves Me Like a Rock," which turned out to be a number two hit single with the uh, uh, the Dixie Hummingbirds, and and that was day number one in the studio. And that's how it all got started.
2: So, you know, there's more than a rumor going around. Um, You know, you've actually said Paul Simon is a real ass. (laughs) Something like Yeah, something like in Better words. Um, Is it Napoleonic Complex? Is it, you know, just that he's such a genius and he doesn't have an emotional state? I mean, you're a doctor now. Look back and what was it? Yeah, yeah.
3: so so first of all, I, I have to say that that. Paul Simon is an extraordinary artist, and he obviously made uh, amazing contributions to our culture. And there are Paul Simon songs that are eternal um, oh, yeah. and are beloved, and and so many people love him. And I, I hate to to bring down people's idols. Actually, it wasn't me who said it. I'm just corroborating what other people uh, have said. There was a guy from Los Lobos. I, I, I don't think I should say the words that he no. used on the radio, but uh, yeah. So there so there were lots of folks who who said this about Paul, and and I do. Uh, there is something uh, a psychological term called cathexis which Mm -hmm. is where all of your sort of psychological energy goes and i think that paul was so focused on his art that people really faded into the background um, and they didn't really have much of an existence we were all instrumental i would often feel like a well-trained monkey uh working with paul and i just pushed the buttons for him but he also had a had a, a kind of a he had kind of a, a mean streak. I was hanging out with somebody else who'd worked with him, and he he had a way of of sort of jabbing you, and and not you wouldn't realize it until you woke up at you know three o'clock in the morning and would say, "Ouch, that 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 really hurts." So, but uh, you know the story that I uh, and there are many many stories that mm-hmm. I can tell because I'm sworn to secrecy about them. Uh, but the one that that kind of shows. Just his sort of lack of of sensitivity was uh, years later, and in, in, in the end of the 70s, when I had already become a, a senior mixer, I was working with uh, Karen Carpenter, who was doing her solo album uh, at the studio at the time, and my mentor Phil Ramone was producing her, and she was terribly anorexic. She she probably weighed 80. It must have been hard to look at her. It's hard for me to look at her pictures. It was. It was. And she was clearly, we all knew how much emotional pain she yeah. was. And, and our assistant would try to get her to just eat a banana or an apple so she could sing. When she opened up her, up her mouth and sang, it was it, it was incredible. It, she it was really it sang like an angel. She had the most extraordinary voice. But this was the first time that she had been away from her brother Richard. Uh, He was actually back in California nursing a quaalude habit, and uh, and and she had a whole new production team. Phil and and actually the guys who'd worked on Michael Jackson stuff, a guy named Rod Temperton, who unfortunately died died recently. And and uh, so here she was in a strange city with a whole new team without Richard. Uh, Clearly this was, and she was in terrible emotional state. And Paul came in while we were recording the album, and I don't think Paul knew her that well, Uh, and he has to listen to some tracks. He was always around the studio because he recorded there. And we. Pl- I played him a couple of songs. And when it was done, he said, Karen, this stuff is awful. This is terrible. You're making a big mistake. You shouldn't be doing this. I could see her shrink before my eyes. Oh, now, no. maybe he was right musically. Was he right? Was he right musically? Some people would say so. Other yeah. people would disagree with it. But even if he, even if he was right musically, yeah in terms of the humanity of the situation, in terms of, yeah. of, of a sensitivity to somebody who was clearly in a, in a bad state, there could have been a lot better ways to communicate that message. Um, so absolutely.
2: I mean, it does set him up to be, you know, an insensitive goon. And I just wonder, though, at, at his um, indiscretion, just because he's so, like like you talk about the 20-hour days, the retakes and the retakes, the minutia of of, you know, just that one little note—a half a second, quarter second, whatever—we have to do the whole thing over again. Like right. that's where his head goes. And yes. And so somebody who was like that, that kind of personality, manic, almost manic, really—you um, uh, know—personality. Yeah. T- maybe he doesn't have an emotional state. Maybe in his uh, it's just music. Uh, no, you know, like. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. In fairness, I, I just want to be fair,
3: kind of. I would say that 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 it, if something was able to penetrate. To him, where he actually felt something, it must be really good. I think that was one of the ways he would make really good records because he was he was so sort of dead inside mm-hmm. that to move him, uh, you knew it really had to be had to be good. And and he he also did have that ear. He 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 had a vision. So uh, unless something lived up to that vision, it was just it was just rejected. And uh, great for his own art, but not great for the people that uh, were around him
2: and it's interesting like you said in the book that you know phil was really good at picking hits um uh, you know during his time and and was it was it when phoebe snow came in and did poetry man did, did you guys not think that that was going to be
3: a hit song Not at all. You know, she was an unknown artist. Uh, She had very small following. She was not the most attractive person. And she was on Shelter Records, which was a label that was going under. And as you probably know, at that point, uh, to have a hit record, you had to have a lot of money because you had to do a lot of payola you had to pay the the radio stations uh uh money to play your record and there was no money for that so i was convinced this record was going right into the dollar 99 bin it was going to go uh and nobody was going to hear it uh and and then it, it proved that quality really does sometimes cut through uh and she just really touched something for a lot of people uh and and that song poetry man which was so beautifully uh produced and sung and written uh became uh just became a magical hit for phoebe and uh you know if you touch one of those things once in life you're you're very fortunate she really channeled that and uh and she had an amazing voice. I think Phil must have known because he took that job on and he I don't think he would have done it if, if he didn't think that she had that potential. But, um, you know, he was he, he we, we never talked about that kind of thing in the studio. Yeah. We so con- more concerned about doing something of quality that that um, uh, it was more sort of a nerve wracking thing than a celebratory. Oh, this is going to be a hit. We know this is going to be a hit. it was more like, huh, do you think we should do it one more time?
2: Yeah. You know, she it reminded me kind of a, of Jan Arden when she did it at 17. And Jan tells a story about she went to Los Angeles and, you know, she could have had a huge career. And as producer said, you're 30 pounds away from being a star. Right.
3: Right. Yeah.
2: A- I mean, it, 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 you can't talk like that to women. It just hits them. Right. Like, it's just like.
3: Ah! Oh, yeah. It was a brutal, especially at that. I mean, we're unfortunately, I think we're seeing a return to that in our current culture, which is really unfortunate. Mm -hmm. But it was a very it it was a tough time. uh, Very, you know, a lot of a lot of macho behavior going on and 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 it wasn't easy for for so many artists and we see that unfortunately with somebody like Karen Carpenter or Amy Winehouse or or all the many uh incredible artists who who have uh self-destructed uh in part because of the pressures uh, of the business and the demands of uh the people who run it to just keep these people going. Now, Phoebe, you know, she had a, a child who was severely brain damaged yeah. and she decided to move away from the business to take care of her child. That that was more important to her. Uh, and I, I don't think she ever regretted that decision.
2: Yeah, I don't, it's, it's hard not to, you know, it would be hard to regret it really. Cause when yeah. you're a mom, sometimes it, that that's everything, you know, it's but it, it's almost like, you know, it makes me think of, um, uh, cat Stevens, you know, when he gave it all up for, yeah, You know, and when he became Youssef and and he gave up all that music. And then I guess later on in in life and his father in law kinda relented and said, Yeah, you can play music. I mean it was all there. It all came back. He's beautiful. The world really missed out on a lot of music from him. Yeah, Uh, it's sad, you know, that somebody would take your talent because that's that's everything. And like you said, you only get to do this once and you gotta you gotta ride that ride that train and you did like you started as that schlepper and you learned everything you you know soaked it all up like the young sponge that you were uh did you know where you were going did you know what you really wanted what was the ultimate for you
3: well you know each each stage had the next rung on the ladder so when I was the schlepper what I wanted to do was be the assistant engineer uh, that was the next rung up on, on the ladder and i i was I, w- I when I was the the schlepper I had to stay in the tape library which was in the basement of the building on 52nd Street and 7th Avenue if you look at the cover of Billy Joel's album 52nd Street you see what the entrance looked like it looked like a, a place where a homeless person would like to take a nap uh, and to get down to the basement I had to walk down this this slippery oily staircase that was fetid from the rancid French fry oil from the coffee shop on the corner and I would just sit in that smelly basement dreaming of taking the freight elevator up the seven stories to where the studios were. So I would I would get to the studio before everybody else and follow the assistants around and leave after everybody else and sneak in on the weekends and steal tape to record whoever I could just to get my chops together and every once in a while when there was no assistant available they'd finally let me kind of cover a session. I'd always screw something up and as I said the guys were pretty rough. The, the, the big engineers were tough, and they would just yell at me and abuse me horribly. Now, Phil Ramone, this guy that we mentioned, he was the R of AR. He was a, a, a lifetime achievement, Grammy Award winning producer engineer, uh, most famous for his work with Billy Joel, but work with Paul Simon, Barbara Streisand, Ray Charles. Uh, the last stuff that he did was with Tony Bennett. You know, legendary guy uh, who also unfortunately died a few years ago. Yeah. Now, he was the alpha of the studio, and, and he had his one hand picked personal assistant. That only he would work with. And, and and if all the other engineers were rough, they were nothing compared to Phil and his reputation where he would was known to eat assistants for breakfast, lunch and dinner. So I didn't want to work with him. That was not an aspiration. <laughs> but because that was too scary, especially since I was always screwing something up. But a day came where I got a, I got a call from the studio manager and he said to me, it's going to be all right I said, "Well, what, 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 what what's wrong?" <laughs> he said, uh, "You have to cover a session with Phil Ramone." I said, "I can't do that. I'm not ready for that." Said, There's nobody else around. I said, "What about his assistant?" He said, "Don't even ask." So I ended up having to do this session with Phil. It was a demo for Lucy Simon, Carly's sister. Carly was there; she was so, so beautiful. And somehow I was, I was so amped up that I didn't screw one thing up for the entire session. And it ended, the session ended. Everybody was smiling. Phil never yelled at me. I, I couldn't believe it. I was just so happy it was over. All I wanted to do was go back to my hidey hole in the basement and and never leave. And the next day, I got a phone call from the studio manager. Where this was my, I thought my daily dose of humiliations was about to begin. He says, get up here, pal. I go up to the main we office. got
2: to stop you. i got to stop you. are going on a break. Yeah. Don't go away. You're going to want to hear the end of this Press story. <laughs>
1: hey, don't
3: stop listening. Mission
1: Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso will continue right after these messages.
6: Stop. The League of Women Voters reminds you that on election day we are all equal. Please join your friends and neighbors by registering to vote and going to the polls, November 8th. Visit www.vote411.org to find out who will be on your ballot and how the voting process works in your community. This election is about our future, and we all need to weigh in. It's the Fitness Minute
1: with fitness expert, Annette Hammond.
5: Prevention Magazine claims potatoes have been given a bad rap among dieters. They say it's because people tend to consume them in the form of greasy french fries, chips, and buttery mashed potatoes. But potatoes really are a nutritious food when they're prepared the right way. One medium potato has about 150 calories and 5 grams of fiber. It also packs nearly 20% of your daily quota for heart-healthy potassium. So bake, roast, steam, or boil potatoes, and don't lather them up with butter and excessive sour cream or mayonnaise. Skip the fried versions of potato chips and fries. For an even healthier version, choose sweet potatoes that are rich in vitamin A. Not only do they taste delicious, they can also help lower blood pressure naturally. I'm Annette Hammond. If you're a fan of Fitness Minute, like us on Facebook at Fitness Minute with Annette Hammond.
2: Uh, thank you for sticking around. You're listening to Mission Unstoppable Radio. I am your host, Frankie Picasso, and today in the studio with me is Dr. Glenn Berger. He is the author of the wonderful book, Never Say No to a Rock Star. It is an autobiographical, autobiographical, I should say, uh, romp through his life when he was a young lad working at A and R Records under the tutelage of Phil Ramone and You know, the his rise to fame and fortune, as as they say, Um, you were working crazy days. You are now about to become Phil Ramone's personal assistant, his his, you know, assistant engineer.
3: Yeah.
2: Now now the nerves have to kick in a little bit.
3: Yeah. So to finish that that little piece of the story, uh, so I was called up to the office and the guys in the office were razzing me. They said, oh, you're Phil's boy now. I said, no, no, I did one session. That's it. I'll never work with him again. And then the studio manager said, oh, no, buddy boy. And he called me over to the scheduling book. And uh, Phil's old assistant's name had been erased from all of his sessions. And my name had been written in. And I was going to be working with Paul Simon all day and with this unknown artist named Phoebe Snow all night. Uh, I was the luckiest boy in New York. I had become Phil Ramone's uh, personal assistant engineer. And yeah, uh, so the, the, that that next day I, I showed up at the studio uh, and we were sitting in the control room. I was sitting in the control room with Phil. And we were looking at the little TV monitor where you could see the front door, and uh, and and as Paul Simon was walking in, Phil, this giant in the business, this legendary figure, started getting nervous. He started saying, "Okay, here he comes. Get ready." And I thought, "Oh my God, if Phil is nervous, <clears throat> yeah. how, should, how should the little assistant feel?" So yeah, it was. Um, you know, those were before I, you went I had to, to A Nervous,
2: Glenn. Before you went to A and R, who was your musical icon? Like, if you could have met anybody at that studio, who would it
3: have been? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think the person that I perhaps regret most not having gotten to work with was John Lennon. Oh, yeah. We are two days away from an anniversary of his unfortunate death. Um, And and I knew a lot of people that actually did work with John because he worked at the record plant, which was our rival studio uh, just a couple of blocks away. Uh, And what I hear, you know, sometimes you don't want to meet your idols, as I Mentioned. Yes, <laughs> but it's a good thing. But the people that I know that worked with John all only had great things to say about him, and that he was really a, a terrific guy. So, so he's um, he was probably the number one guy that I I regret not having had an opportunity to work with. But I got to work with a lot of other of my idols, and and that was good. That's enough. pretty cool.
2: You um in one of the scenes, uh, you're really excited. The thing went off really great, and you jump and you jumped on a drum kit. Now I'm a drummer, so that always, you know. Oh,
3: look, you are. You went
2: the, yeah, I went on a drum kit. Yes. That's really cool. So, are you a drummer, or was that just, you know, like it's a great way to let out a whole bunch of energy?
3: Yeah, it was just, a, you know, I got to when, when I got to the studio and I got to encounter these in, extraordinary studio musicians. Um, I, I realized immediately that I was not. A musician, Uh, you know, I could I could sort of bang on on almost any instrument, but uh, I was never going to be as extraordinary as as these guys were. So Mm -hmm. I would never call myself a a drummer, though I do like to, you know, bang on it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about Dylan. Let's talk about Dylan. He 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 was another kind of disappointment to you.
3: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I am uh, the only person alive who witnessed the entire New York Sessions for an album that many people consider to be one of the best, if not the best album of all time, which was uh, Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. Mm-hmm. And now we can say, uh, now I can not only say that, but that Dylan is the Nobel Prize winner for, for literature, which is, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and yeah, so we were, um, uh, Dylan uh, was going to come into the studio on the Jewish New Year, Uh, To his it was his return to Columbia Records. Uh, This was the studio where he recorded his first album. And we were very, very stoked. You know, we, we were used to working with the greats all the time. But this was different. This was Bob Dylan. Yeah. And and so so Dylan was uh, out – I brought him out into the studio, and there I am just inches from him. Like, there he is in his black vest and his Jufro and his guitar around his shoulders and his harmonica holder around his neck. I can't believe I'm inches from Bob Dylan. And some of the top studio cats were in the studio. Uh, Eric Weisberg and the Deliverance Band. There was a movie called Deliverance. Yeah. They did the soundtrack for that. And these guys were very excited too because, again, this is different. Yeah, And uh, so now – Dylan didn't have a producer or arranger on this thing, so the guys were going to come up with what was called head arrangements. Uh, And what that means is that Dylan will play the tune. He'll teach the songs to the musicians. And maybe over the course of a couple of hours, the cats will come up with their own parts, and they'll come up with just the right setting for the song in collaboration with with Dylan. So Dylan starts playing the first song, and he runs through it once or twice. The guys are just beginning to get it together, figure out what the chords are and the arrangement are about. And and the third time, Dylan just starts playing a different song without telling Mm -hmm. anybody. The guys yeah. make mistakes. They they don't expect this. As soon as one of them plays the wrong note, Dylan just waves them off as if he's trying to get rid of an annoying gnat and tells him to stop playing. He runs this song down one or two times, and then again, without saying a word to anybody, he just starts playing a third song. Again, the guys screw up. Before you know it, all the musicians are sitting silently behind their instruments. And the dream of playing on a Bob Dylan album is now the nightmare that they are not going to be playing on the Bob Dylan album. We end up recording the entire album in a day uh, with just the bass player sitting inches from Dylan's fretboard on his guitar trying to figure out what the next chord is he's going to play. He comes in two days more and does the album two more times. Now, this is completely unlike anything I've ever seen. A guy like Paul Simon could take a year to record an album, and he does it three times in three days. Well, but then there are the songs, right? And the songs are extraordinary and I think he deserved that that Nobel Prize for Literature because he really was an incredible songwriter. And I don't think there's a song in his repertoire that is as painful, as as emotionally intense as the song Idiot Wind, which was from that album. And I'm 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 so close to Dylan, I can see the spit coming out of his mouth. I can't believe that I'm getting to witness the creation of this masterpiece. And the song ends with the plaintive moan of his harmonica. And then when it comes to an end, everybody's silent in the control room for a couple of seconds. And then he turns to us in the control room and with this sarcastic snarl says, was that sincere enough? (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. As a 17-year-old kid, 18, 19, however old I was then, you know, rock and roll was my religion. Yeah. And the essence of that religion was the truth. And here's one of the gods in the Pantheon and he's totally full of it. The guy kills the studio musicians with the aplomb of a psychopath. He records his album three times in three days sloppily. And now this was it sincere enough? Man, I'm telling you, disillusionment can really mess with a young man's head.
2: Oh, I bet. Oh, yeah. I bet. The- and and I think he said in the thing he he played open detuning or something, and so like you couldn't even follow him if he wanted to. Like exactly. he's really messed with people.
3: Yes, yes, yes. In fact, when I originally uh, wrote the, the the story and I posted it on my blog, uh, and it kind of went viral, uh, the uh, Tony Brown, the bass player, wrote to me, and he said, "Yeah, he was the one who pointed that out." He said, "And Dylan uh, had tuned the strings on his guitar in an unconventional way, so the place where he was putting his fingers was not where you normally put them. So, so Tony really had a hard time figuring out what what Dylan was doing."
2: but that's what these guys are like amazing. It's like I, when I saw the Funk Brothers, you know, the the band yeah. behind all the Motown guys that yes. never had a name and you right. think, "Oh, they're just genius. They're so amazing." And yeah. it's so unfortunate that they're they're almost forgettable, but they're right. not because they're the whole reason that we love that stuff. Yeah. It's like all of these guys that you're talking about, yeah. like they're yeah. brilliant, just brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Yeah. Now, you um you were working crazy days. I don't think you saw sunlight, uh, you know. You, but you were a young man, and, and I had so a studio you, tan. Yeah, driven, <laughs> driven, you know, driven by food, sex, and rock and roll. Right. Uh, maybe I don't know what to order. It went in. Um, but you mentioned a couple of girls. Yeah. In the book, Ivy was one. Yeah. Uh, the what you don't mention though is the transition, really, from, you know, being. An engineer, and I want to go back. We're going to go back to talking about, you know, the kudo or or the big culmination of the engineer job with Fossey and stuff um, to becoming a psychotherapist. Like, where did that come from?
3: Yeah. Well, um, first of all, I always, when I started, I saw one generation sort of leaving the studio and the next one coming up, and I told myself that I would, I would know when it was the right time to hang up my spikes. Uh, and I had done uh, pretty much uh, more than I ever expected to do in the music business and got to have such extraordinary experiences. The business really changed so dramatically um, where uh, by the time I was finishing up, when I was in my my mid thirties, uh, it was me and one guy behind a laptop. And the thing that I really loved about the studio was this community of of people. And and when you talk about listening to those songs on the radio and 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 tearing up, uh, that came from people playing together. Uh, yeah. and, and you just can't get that feel any other way, and and that that was the part that I really loved, and and because of technology and budgetary reasons, that just wasn't happening in the same way anymore. So so my interest waned, and I'd always had an interest in in um, in, in the world of the mind, but I had this I had this um, I, I was. About I was at my thirty seventh birthday actually, and and um, and I was complaining, I was moaning and groaning. What should I do with my life? I was feeling lost. I couldn't get out of the music thing, but I didn't know what I should go into. And and there was a woman there at at this little birthday gathering who had a migraine headache. She was passed out on the table, and she she lifted up her head and she said, "Go to Ellis Island." Now I don't know if you've been to Ellis Island or you know. Yeah, what, my what grandparents
2: is, came through there.
3: Grandparent, exactly, and so did mine. So yeah. Ellis Island is the island in New York where so many immigrants came. Where into- were
2: your Where was your family from?
3: They were from uh, my My grandfather was from the Russian Polish. Yeah. Pale, you know that. Me too where the borders would go back and forth, right? Yeah. And uh, so I took it as a sign. You understand the story exactly if you had grandparents who came from there. And I got on the boat. It was a beautiful October day. That's when my birthday is. And I I imagine that I saw the island of Manhattan as my grandfather did when he came here at 16 years of age in 1906 without a penny in his pocket. And something started to break inside of me. And I got out to the island and I heard... Folk songs that my mom used to sing to me. And, and, and when you go out to the seawall, all the names of the immigrants, have you been out there?
2: I haven't been out there. No, you got, you got I go. got to do that. Yeah. yeah,
3: because the names of all of the immigrants are etched on that seawall and you'll find your grandparents names. And so I found my grandfather's name or somebody that had the same name that he yeah. did. And and I said to my ancestor, um, what should I do with my life? What should I do? And like Jewish grandfathers have been telling their grandchildren since the dawn of time, he said, go back to school. I said, I can't go to school. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I like fancy suits. I got, you know, I got things to do. I got people to meet. He said, if I came here, uh, you know, across an ocean without a penny in my pocket, what did I do that for? And he said, I knew I was never going to make it. This is all in my mind. I'm hearing this. I came for the promise of my grandchildren for you. So don't tell me that you can't find the time and you can't find the money. I couldn't argue with that. Uh, next thing I knew I was back on the island of Manhattan that was October and in January I was in school uh, studying psychology and uh, I'm fueled by that energy to this day uh, 20 years later.
2: Wow, we're going to go to a commercial break, but when we come back talking about great suits, I want to talk about Bernie Topin and, and the white jacket of Elton Johns that he gave you. <laughs> 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 we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere.) <laughs>
1: That's right. Don't stop listening. Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso will continue right after these messages.
4: This is the TokiNet Radio Network. Radio with a cutting edge. It's marching
6: and the Have you seen the video of the little seal that jumped into the back of a boat to escape being eaten by killer whales? A family was whale watching near Vancouver Island, British Columbia, when they noticed a pod of orcas swimming around their boat. All of a sudden, a harbor seal swam up to the stern of their boat and jumped in with the orcas, hot on his tail. When a whale leaps out of the water, exposing most of its body, it's called breaching. There are 32 different species of seals distributed throughout the world and are found from polar to tropical waters. The largest concentrations of seals in the U.S. are in California and New England. Everyone who has seen the video agrees this was one lucky seal. What's another word for the fear of the sea? Thalassophobia. It's margin I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app Too Funny for Words. <laughs>
2: Here we go. But
3: well, here's what we're doing,
2: <laughs> and we're back. And welcome to Mission Unstoppable. We're in our last legs of our journey, and we're going to let Dr. Glenberger bring us home. But first, I want to hear about that white jacket.
3: Well, it was actually a white jumpsuit. You know, this was oh, this was a a little jumpsuit. Little, Love it. Yeah, a jumpsuit. It was uh, so better. Uh yeah, I did get to work with Bernie Taupin, who was the lyricist for uh, all of elton John many of Elton John's hits and all of his early early hits and we were working on a uh, a demo for an artist that he was producing It was actually the night of the uh, Academy Awards when Rocky won uh, for best Picture. everybody was very excited about that uh, and as a uh, a parting gift for having worked with him, uh Bernie gave me a white jumpsuit from elton john's nineteen seventy four tour. Uh, which I then wore, I think, probably every day for the next
2: uh, <laughs> I love it.
3: nine months or so until it finally fell apart. And uh, I, I wish I had that that jumpsuit to this day. And it was, um, yeah, it's okay. embarrassing we, to say that we wore jumpsuits in those. In 70s. We
2: did, but, yeah, <gasps> yeah, leisure suits and jumpsuits. But okay, there's a couple of stories that we have to make sure that we get in. First of all, you had your hands on Bette Miller's boobies.
3: I did, indeed. You were you <laughs> giving away the punchline. <laughs> Ah,
2: well, you know, not really, because, you
3: know, all right. So here's the lead up to that story. So, yeah. So I was a, a, shall we say, a cocky little uh, assistant engineer. I don't know what got into me. I had to deliver a tape copy, a cassette. Remember cassettes? Yeah. I had to a cassette to Bet Midler. We were working. I was working with Bette on on uh, uh, one of her records. I think the third record, and um, she lived down in Greenwich Village at the time, uh, the hip neighborhood of New York, and and so I called her up to see when I could come deliver the tape. And something possessed me when I made this phone call to ask her if she wanted to go out on a date, and she said yes. Now, I think she was about eight or nine years older than me at the time, but I didn't think about these things and So, I went down to the village and found her found her apartment in those tangled streets and she was very charming and she's very funny and she's very intelligent and she said uh and and we talked about David Bowie, who she had just met, and she thought he was very charming and we were having a good time. she said, "You want to go out to get some dinner?" I said, "Sure." Uh, so she took me to uh, a restaurant called uh, Alfredo's. Fettuccine Alfredo was all the rage at that time, which was, you know, an Italian dish that had cheese, cheese and more cheese. And lots of cream. Uh, and yeah. a lot of cream, cream and cheese. But- and, uh, of course, I walk in the restaurant. It's packed. It's the it's the hip restaurant of the day. And I just get ignored by the maitre d'. But then they see Miss Midler and the C parts.
0: Yeah.
3: Saunters in with those famous breasts. And so we get a table and I am so far out of my depth. I can I can barely breathe. I am just following her lead. She says, Do you want to have some Chablis? I don't know what that is. I said, <laughs> Yes, because I've been instructed, whatever. You'd you ask, always say yes. I said yes. So I figured out that was white wine. Uh, you know, I had to eat an artichoke, which I had no idea how to do. Somehow I survived. I survived the meal. She invites me back to her place. And we're drinking a little more wine. We're dancing to some Marvin Gaye. Uh, and she says, "You want to watch TV?" I say, "Okay." Now the TV in the New York apartments, the the rooms could be quite small, and uh, the TV was in her bedroom, which only had a bed and a TV. Right. So the next thing I knew, I found myself laying next to Ben Midler in bed, and I start to think, "Gee, I wonder what the protocol is here." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what? 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 Does, far one, can I go? What yeah. does one do? So I thought, well, you know, I I, I have kissed in my life, so I know how to do that. Let's see. Let's see how that works. And she responded very favorably to that. Um, And so, okay, well, now what do I do now? And then I realized uh, if anybody is familiar with Bette Midler, uh, the Divine Miss M, she was quite famous for for her for her boobies, as you call them. And I thought, well, I might, you know, let's just see what happens if I if I touch them. And uh, and she didn't seem to 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 be opposed to that either. But then a picture of my mentor, Phil Ramone, came into my head because he always said, you know, don't mess with the artists. So now I I had conflicting impulses. Plus, you know, what what was the should I be a gentleman or I didn't know what I was supposed to do? Well, I made the foolish decision at that point that the right thing to do was to leave. And let me tell you something. Hell hath no wrath like (laughs) that was pissed. But now I don't night think. to you. Gosh. I was you know, I didn't realize that I was really just the boy toy of the night. I was just the roadie for that for that one minute yeah. there to 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 fulfill a purpose. But, you know, I thought maybe this was the beginning of a relationship.
2: And it really seemed like your purpose through all the book. I mean, you know, uh, oh, saw yeah. girl. Yeah. <laughs> You know, have Cockwell will follow. So, right, right. <laughs> you <know.
3: laughs> so you know that, and it was. But once I had committed myself, and I, I I couldn't get out of it. I though I regretted it. But you know, the thing is, is that I I the thing that I really regret is that we didn't remain friends because she was yeah. a really cool person, and she and does I, seem like a nice person. And it really makes a better story that I didn't actually follow through on.
2: Probably, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, did Phil, he call yelled
3: public? at me the next day anyway, and you know, I had to tell him yeah. what happened, and he he.
2: Hands off the merchandise. Yeah. (laughs) I want to make sure that we get it in. Judy Collins wrote the foreword. Yes. Lovely. Lovely lady. Lovely singer. Yeah. Um, How did you have this special relationship?
3: Judy, I was so fortunate to work on the Judith album. Uh, Send in the Clowns is from that Mm -hmm. record. Uh, Arif Martin was the producer who was one of the greatest producers of all time. He uh, The last thing that Arif produced was the Nora Jones first album. I just love her so much. A phenomenal hit. And he worked with so many great artists, Aretha Franklin, the Bee Gees, um, the Young Rascals, uh, so many so many wonderful records. And And he produced that record uh, and did a masterful job. And, and Judy was just, I was the assistant engineer and Judy would uh, come into the control room uh, to listen back to a take and she would turn to to me with those beautiful blue eyes that uh, Stephen Stills wrote about in Sweet uh, Judy Blue, yeah. eyes, um, and, and sensitively say, Glenn, what do you think? You know, and nobody ever asked me what I thought. I, w- I was the guy who ordered the sandwiches, you know. Uh, but she, and, and it really did a lot to develop my own sense of taste. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to to really begin to listen in a particular way, you know, because once she asked the question, I actually had to have an opinion about it uh and uh and so she was so generous in that way, in terms of including me. She was one of the first people, maybe the first artist to give me an opportunity to engineer. Uh, one of her records. I did a. I started out by doing a retrospective album of hers, uh, and got to hear all of her music. Uh, an album called So Very Early in the Spring, uh, and and that was an amazing opportunity to hear all of her her great music. And she, un- unlike. Uh, some of the artists that I worked with, like Paul, she was so generous of spirit uh, and so kind to all of us in the studio and had such impeccable taste. I mean, the team that she put together for that record and the songs that she chose and and just the quality of the musicianship. And, and, and she's. if you listen to her records that she's making today, her records are as, are as wonderful today as they've ever been. Her voice sounds better than ever. I really, in fact, recommend that you listen to her latest record, which is uh, an album of duets. Uh, That that is just it's just stirring how beautiful and moving that is. So I I just feel so for and she's always we've always kept in touch. And um, oh, that's nice. So fortunate that that she uh, that I was there for that and that she's been so generous to write the forward for the book. and, And she's just a great supportive. It's wonderful.
2: great to hear that, that you know, um, you could still go and, and see somebody like her and have a wonderful experience. Just last night, somebody was telling me about they had just seen Dylan and wish they hadn't. Right. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <Yeah.
3: clears throat> She's really kept her voice. You yeah.
2: Know? And, that yeah. happened to me with Dan Hill. Oh, thank God he had a really great female singer with him because right. you know, it would have been very disappointing. It's right. sad. But, you know, we all grow old. What can we say? Indeed. right?
3: Well, but you know what? Some of us prove that... you know, you you can keep going on and and uh, and and do great work into into your latter years. Uh, I don't know if you heard the new Rolling Stones record you're playing, yeah, but yeah. I think it's fantastic. I think it's great.
2: Hey, you know what? They you, let's tell your Jagger story because we're almost out of time. How I don't know how much time we have, but we're almost out of time. Let's hear that. But I do want to make sure that four minutes fantastic. Um, Glenn's book is again. It's called Never Say No to a Rock Star in the Studio with Dylan Sinatra, Jagger, and more. Doctor Glenn Berger. Is his name, and you can get this on Amazon, in Barnes and Noble, uh, everywhere
3: These books are sold, I would imagine. Exactly. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> so when people ask what the most exciting moment I had in the studio, I would have to say it was working with Mick Jagger. In the in the early seventies, the Stones recorded a couple of concerts in Brussels, uh, and many people will say that that was the Stones at their peak. Mick Taylor was still playing guitar with them. Keith hadn't fallen into the worst of his heroin addiction, um, but Mick didn't think that these recordings were good enough for a live album. And there was a radio show at the time called the King Biscuit Flower Hour that mm-hmm. broadcast live performances of the great acts of the day. Uh, so Mick came into our studio to supervise a remix of these live tapes for that radio show. Uh, and Mick was as charming as Dylan was weird. I mean, he was just so beautiful. And, you know, we would always judge these folks by how they treated the person at the bottom of the totem yep. pole. And he was very, very sweet to me. He called me Jinja because I had long red hair. Jinja. <laughs> he'd come up to me and he'd box with me and tousle my hair. And I would basically die in ascend to nirvana because I was yeah. a big Rolling Stones fan. Very, very charming. So Saturday morning comes and I'm the first person in the studio to set up because that was my job. And the next person to arrive was Mick. We have a very... Terrific conversation. And then he says, Well, what's the next song that, you, that we're going to be mixing? So I tried to do the hottest mix that I could of the thing that we were going to be doing next. And he said, You know, I really don't like my lead vocal on that thing. So why don't you go set up a microphone like I'd use on stage? Mike called an SM57 out in the studio. I'll hold Two it minutes, Glenn. And I'll, yeah, I'm, I'm there. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, um, and I'm going to re sing that song. So I set it up and I went back in the control room, hit the record button and Mick Jagger sang Honky Tonk Women just for me. Woo. That was a peak moment. Yeah. And then in the book And at there, the end of it he said, "That one's for you,
2: Ginger." Love it. Love it. That's so great. And then, you know, in the book you you bring in your wife, your now wife, um is it Sharon O'Connor? Yes, burger, yes. and and you're sitting in a diner waiting for your son to be born and or pick him up I guess from the hospital and uh, honky tonk woman's playing on playing on the uh, the radio there for you so it, it, it's a great um, it's a wonderful book it, I love how it just comes back around. You know, from from the early years back to today, back and forth, it, it it's just it's wonderful, and it's so well written. And I just can't even say enough good things about you and your book. And I wish you all the very best. Thank and you if you so. want more Glenn Berger, go to www. and you. maybe download down, download uh, Shrinky. That sounds pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being my guest today, Glenn. Oh, appreciate my having question. you on the show.
3: Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, you're a lot of fun to have, and I'm sure that um, you're going to be very, very successful. And probably a wonderful shrink, don't you think, uh, Karina? (laughs) I I think so. (laughs) Listen, um, we'll be back next week, and that's our last week before holiday break, so make sure you tune in. We want to say goodbye and happy holidays to you. Wherever you are in the world, day or night, thank you for listening. Take care. Bye.
1: Stop. When the chips were down, they didn't stop. Stories of people who, when the odds were against them, turned defeat into victory. You've been listening to Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso. See you next time. And always remember. Don't, don't,
2: don't, don't stop